Come on, that would have been awesome had it gone in. <laughs> I didn't do that prank at graduation, but I hit that shot. All right, well, I haven't done this in quite a long time. You know how, like, surgeries have been postponed? I don't want to be the first person on the surgery table after coronavirus has gone through. And I also am grateful for you being the first people in the building after the pastor hasn't preached in a long time. Thanks for your grace. I don't know about you, but COVID has made me feel like a road trip that's never going to end. The longer it's gone on, the more I've had this longing for home. Sure, you can live stream a service from your couch while you eat grape nuts without a mask, but to me that feels like that continental breakfast in the hotel. It's more obligatory and not satisfying. So thanks to the, thank the Lord, we're here together after a long time. It's been thir- 13 weeks since we've held services in this space. The last time I was here with people right there, we were celebrating all that God had done in five years of ministry here in this uh, congregation and the family that God has been uh, building. But honestly, 13 weeks, that's a quarter of the year, and that's felt more like three decades to me. Each one of us has been marked over the last 13 weeks by struggle, strife, strain, sickness, and sorrow. But even if I try to talk to you about things like coronavirus, that feels out of date to you right now, doesn't it? Because we're more preoccupied with what's happened over the last 13 days. Our nation has processed and protested police and policies with prayers and pleading. And then we've protested protests and policed our policies with prayers and pleading, and all of this has left everyone confused and disheartened and saddened and angry and afraid. I'm curious, I'm talking to people right now who have some sort of mixed feelings about anything right now. Just raise your hand. You're like, there's stuff going on in my heart. I don't really know how to deal with it. Today, we're going to pause to consider the situation that has engulfed our country and our region. I've learned a few things about myself as it relates to my heart and society this past few weeks. First thing I've learned is I no longer view Facebook as a viable means of developing relationships based on trust and understanding. I just don't. Personally, this has nothing to do with a political statement, but I don't trust reporters anymore after personal experiences. I don't know who knows what is happening and how to get us to move forward. But one thing I know, that as the people of God are called to step into the messy middle of life, I'm glad we're people, we are a people, a specific people who have divine revelation from God as to how we ought to move forward in life. That song, Waymaker, is not just some ethereal uh, way for us to find our way to heaven. It's, it's that God has come to show us how to find our way here on earth. So the passage that I want to draw your attention to today is found in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. This is actually one of Paul's main thesis statements in the entire book. I wish we would have made it mandatory that you bring a mask and a Bible. Like if there's one moment where a pastor can tell people you can come if... Miss that one. 
Grab your phone, though, if you don't have a, a physical, like, you know, the, where the only letters on the page are the Bible. You know, if you don't have one of those, um, grab your phone and look up Romans 15. Because this is an incredible um, passage. You need to highlight this star, this bracket, this whatever it is in your Bibles that catches your attention to help you know that this is an important part of the book. Paul kind of back ends the book of Romans with his main thesis statement. And I actually want to argue today that the words of Romans, the, the, one of the main points of Romans, helps us find our way forward today. And my prayer is that we as a church body would take seriously Paul's prayer, his vision, his admonition for us as a church that we, as we move forward in these momentary markings of history. And so let's read this together. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. And because you've been sitting on your couch so long, can I have you stand? I'm going to read out loud because you're all unmasked. But let's stand under the authority of God's word. This is, as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words, his perfect, infallible, sufficient, inerrant words. It says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Stay standing as I pray. Father, we need you to give us hearts that are open. I need you to give me uh, words that are clear. May I tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but your truth. And may we receive it as people who are willing to hear from you. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? You may be seated. Uh, his name was uh, Andre Trocme. And since I don't know French, I probably just butchered it. He was a Huguenot pastor in the village of Les Chambrons in France in the 1930s. Uh, Huguenots, because maybe, maybe we don't know who they are, they were men and women who believed and preached in what we here at Bethel believe and preach, and they were marginalized in France for defying the state church, and they faced persecution. Uh, Les Chambrons was a, a small village kind of on the outskirts in the southern part of France. It was very rural. It had poor people who lived there. Maybe about 3,000 were gathered in that village living in that time. There might not have been anything out of the ordinary in this community, long-standing in its culture, established French traditions. But their pastor, André Trocme, was sent to this remote village because of his countercultural attitudes towards embracing those who were non-French. He believed the Bible. He believed in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And because he preached the Bible, when Nazi forces began to occupy France, his congregation, small though it were, built a home, a small safe house to aid what Trocme called the people of the Bible as they escaped persecution. One home turned into dozens of homes, and word got out that Trocme may be hiding Jews in his village. French authorities approached him, fearing the Nazis, and asked him to produce a list of the Jews living in Les Chambrons. To which Trocme replied, 
We do not know what a Jew is. We only know men. For five years, between 1940 and 1945, Trachme's church and village saved the lives of somewhere between 3,500 to 5,000 Jewish refugees from dying in a concentration camp. If ever there was a story that helped us see what it means to welcome, as Romans 15, 7 says, to welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you, it might be this one. Trachme's actions nearly 80 years ago take seriously Paul's admonition to the church in Rome two millennia ago to live in harmony with one another, to glorify God with one voice, and to welcome one another. What I hope hasn't gotten lost on us as we've delved deep into the theology of the book of Romans over the past two years is that Paul wrote this missionary letter as a, for a specific reason and with a specific purpose in mind to a specific people. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, because I said, you know, one of the main themes is in Romans 15, and you're like, well, what about Romans 1, 16? It says this. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation, for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The question we could ask is, why did Paul write Romans? You don't care about this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. When I was sitting in a New Testament class in my master's uh, days, when I was studying for my master's, I had a professor who walked in, uh, first day of class, and he said, all right, everybody, tell me what the main point of Romans is. You have 30 seconds to write it down on a sheet of paper. I'm like, okay, great. And um, I grew up in a good family. I went to Awana. I knew justification by grace through faith. So I wrote it down. He said, the main point of Romans is that we are justified, not by our works, but by the grace of God. And um, one by one, he said, now we're going to go around the class and share our answers, <laughs> which is awful. Maybe one of the greatest graces of e-learning these days is getting out of this moment right here. So I, people are saying, justification by grace, justification. And I, I said, justification by faith. And to which our professor said, perfect for chapters one through eight. What about the rest of the book? What about chapters 9 through 11 or 12 through 16? What do they say about justification by faith? And why does Paul launch out in Romans 1.16 talking about the power of God to salvation for the Jews and Gentiles? He said, when Paul wrote Romans to help us know how the gospel saves us, that's yes, he did. Amen. But Paul also shows us how the gospel unifies us from every ethnicity, theology, and society. Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is for everyone. But he doesn't say it that way. He specifically says, Jewish lives matter. And Gentile lives matter. Now, what distinction is that? It's an ethnic distinction. Why does Paul put ethnicity in the same sentence as gospel power? Because the church of Rome was divided. Among many ways, it was divided, but one of the ways it was divided was by ethnicity. And this played itself out in their own dysfunctional ways in the church. Romans 14 tells us that some people, mainly the Gentiles, were okay with... Okay, can you guys all just tune in for a second? I'd let you take your mask off, but just tune in for a second. Okay? This is, this is important. 
Paul tells us in Romans 14 that some of the Gentiles were okay eating meat. We're all okay eating meat. Some of us, most of us, yeah, amen? Okay, okay, good, yeah, thanks, Dave. We're probably going to watch Instagram for the rack of ribs later. And um, specifically, Gentiles were okay with eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, pagan idols, and then sold at at a discount And they said, well, we're just being good financial stewards of all that God has given us. To which the Jewish believers in the church in Rome said, what are you doing? Sorry if I just sprayed COVID. (laughs) Try not to. No holy Christian would ever in their entire lives ever be associated with meat that stood before a pagan unholy idol. Church had problems, don't you think? uh, Lest we think that this is an otherworldly situation, we could easily transpose the idea of whether or not we should wear masks in public today or not. Solicit people's opinions about whether this is a pandemic or a plandemic. All of a sudden, the ancient words of Paul sound like, you know, something out of our pages today. When you take Romans together as a whole, then you cannot escape the deep need for unity in the church between those of Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds to unite in the gospel of justification by faith, not family. The gospel of justification by faith, not works. The gospel of justification by faith through God, not ourselves. The gospel is for the Jew and for the Gentile, and it should produce in all of us harmony and unity. And so, to the text. Romans 15. Paul's prayer is echoing his initial prayer in Romans chapter 9 verses or Romans chapter 1 verses 9 through 14 that there would be mutual encouragement in the faith. And he says this in uh, Romans chapter 15 verse 5. He says, "May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus." You know, this week I've noticed that when Christians are suspicious of one another, One of the first qualities of relationships to to dissolve are endurance and encouragement. We get discouraged and weary when we have to sort out our differences, and many people give up trying. They say, you know what? I'm just going to tolerate that person. I'm just going to smile at them from a distance, but I'm not going to do life with them. And Paul pushes us to see the basis of our harmony with one another is this connection to and the example of Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, we always are a people who are looking back to the examples and the ways of Christ. Look at the logic of this verse. As God gives you the stamina to stay in there and the courage to come together, you'll live in harmony with one another as is fitting for Christians who follow Jesus as their Lord. Paul uses the word here, in accord, and that's used five times in the book of Acts to describe Being of one mind. The believers were together and of one mind. It means to be of one mind with Christ. And I wonder, if I could probe into your Facebook account right now, do you desire to be of one mind with the people who you've recently blocked on Facebook? Who also profess Christ. You know, Paul doesn't say we need to be harmonious with the world. 
but with one another in Christ. And I wonder, is this a longing in your heart? Do you join with Paul and the Holy Spirit in this prayer that you might understand the viewpoints and the experiences of others, that while you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, you can sort through the issues and recognize that your own preference and your own politics surrounding your own convictions, you can give grace to your brother who then does. Church, I feel I need to say this, that unity is not uniformity. We have this idea that the Christian church needs to have a united front, meaning that all of us need to sing the same music, dress the same way, salute the same flag. And friends, that's not the gospel. That's legalism. The only way we will have unity is if we also have and recognize our diversity. If everyone considered every issue identically, we wouldn't need a church or a unifying savior. We would have a humanistic agenda. The goal has never been wholesale agreement on social or political or, dare I even say, spiritual issues. And you don't get harmony if everyone's staying on the melodic line. The Church of Jesus Christ is a choir of voices that, when singing in accord with Christ, they resonate their differences in beauty, not dissonance. Which means the harmonious life requires us learn to sing the gospel in the same spaces as someone who has a different voice than us. What does that, do? what does that require? It requires maturity. Dear Lord, help us grow up. Amen? I mean, help me grow up, God. I'm immature in the way that I engage our society. I'm immature in the way I force my own viewpoints upon other people. I'm immature in the ways that I get angry about people who aren't even close to me. God, help me grow up. Help me mature. Because I'll never live in unity with those who aren't like me, who are diverse from me, unless I grow in maturity. God, grow us up to love one another and encourage one another and appreciate the nuance and unique contribution that each member makes in the symphony of God's grace. And this is what Paul explains in the next verse here, in case you think I'm just taking a text out of context. Verse 6. When you sing in harmony, live in such harmony with one another, that together you may then with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15, 5 and 6 reiterated then in verse 7, it pushes the most doctrinally deep book of the Bible to its end of racial harmony. Unity and diversity glorifies God. That's Paul's point. I've had more than I'd like to admit, more people than I'd like to admit, tell me this week, in some sense of thinking they know what's going on, Pastor, you just preach the gospel and stay away from social issues. The problem with that notion is that it's a false secular sacred divide that Paul intentionally enmeshes in Romans all the way through from the first verse to the last. Chapter by chapter, Paul shows the need all humans have for Christ's salvation and the need all Christians have to be unified in this life through Christ. But sadly, I think many American Christians just want pastors to preach how to get to heaven when you die. And guess what? 
only two times in the book of Romans is the word heaven even mentioned. First, wrath is coming down from heaven. It's chapter 1. And chapter 10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy saying, who can ascend into heaven? That is to pull Christ down. What does that have to do with you going to heaven when you die? No, brothers, sisters, let me plead for you and with you. The gospel has more to do with this life here and now than maybe we've previously thought. Otherwise, Romans 15, 5 through 7, if pastor just preached the gospel, stay away from social issues. If that's how we were intended to live, Romans 15, 5 through 7 would read this way. May the God grant you to live in Christ. Glorify God. Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, Thomas Jefferson once ripped out all of the miracles of his Bible, and he was left with a human version of God. We call it the Jeffersonian Bible. And I'm afraid the past decades we've ripped the humanity out of the Bible, and we've been left with a hyper-spiritual version of God. What did Jesus say were the most important commands? Love God, love others. So what does the Bible tell us is the goal of the gospel? The glory of God through Christ. How do we then sing that song with one voice together in harmony? And how do we display that harmony when people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, theologies, and aspects of society realize that in Christ we are all family? There must be a vertical dimension to this gospel, absolutely. That God has reconciled sinners to himself vertically. But there is always a horizontal dimension to the gospel as well. That as reconciled sinners, we might be reconciled to each other. In that resurrection of Jesus Christ, that vertical resurrection of Jesus Christ that reconciled us to God, he also then told his believers that believed in him and saw him resurrected, he said to them, go into all the world and make disciples of people who don't look like you or believe like you or think like you how can we make disciples if we ignore the basic needs of people around us how can we show that god is love if we refuse to walk alongside those who feel hate Are you someone who wishes that Christians would do nothing instead of something in this world? Maybe you've neglected the horizontal aspects of the gospel. I wonder if that same sentiment resounds for Andre Trocme, whose gospel preaching ignited a community to show love in one of the worst forms of injustice known in the modern world. I wonder if his people said to him, Pastor, don't get political now. These people aren't our problem. Of course not all Nazis are bad people. Of course not all Jews are all bad people. Let them be and just tell us about how to get to heaven when we die. No. The gospel required Christians to hollow out walls and cellars in their homes. The gospel required Christians to be on the lookout and put their lives at risk for the sake of the vulnerable. The gospel required Christians to engage. So how do we do this? This is the question that's come up a, a bunch in my life with, with conversations I've had recently. How do we do this? I think the answer comes in verse 7. 
Paul says to the Jews and to the Gentiles, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And here it is again, God has welcomed us, which is to his own glory in his son, Jesus. And so welcome one another, glory to God. I think this is where I have missed the point in my life. When I say welcome, if I stand on the stage and I say welcome, you all hear it and you say hello, right? Like welcome, hi, right? But the church in Rome didn't welcome people to services like this in temples. And more often than not, they were meeting in people's houses undercover out of the view of society. Many, uh, like many small groups during COVID did from the church, which is fine. I'm glad that you guys met. Be safe. Make good choices. That was a joke. Did that not land? <laughs> you didn't realize people were meeting? You guys. In Rome, they were hidden in homes. There were no names of churches like ours today. If you're a Jewish believer, you might find yourself needing to worship Jesus in a Gentile house. You would eat a meal together, what was called a love feast, and often this feast would end up being shared by people who were of the same ethnicity, in the same theology, in the same society. And when Paul writes the word, welcome one another, he cuts through all the classism and the racism and the religiosity to say, diversify your table and honor God. Poor, don't just eat with the poor people. Rich, don't just eat with the rich people. But rich, invite the poor. And Jew, don't just eat with the Jew but invite the Gentile. And eaters of vegetables who ought to also eat a meal with those who ate meat, who sacrificed it to idols. Make sure, as you do so, that you do not cause your brother to stumble and feel unwelcome at the table. Welcome all. All right, I can hear you saying, Pastor, boil this down to two words. If I had to put this all in two words, it would simply be this. What Paul is telling the church to do, what Paul is telling believers in Rome to do is just to simply say to one another this. May our attitude be that of people who always demonstrate the love of Christ with a perspective that shows other people in our house you're welcome. I want to be one who's made to make you feel welcome at home. Christians, our job is to show the love of Christ to the glory of God as we say to one another, Mikasa es su casa, right? Welcome home. And this is what Paul is saying. Welcome home. Jew, when you go into the house of a Gentile, Gentile, make sure they feel like they belong there, that you're standing outside, maybe with a mask on, going, you belong here, welcome home. Gentile, as you go into the house of a Jew, May you be made to feel by that Jew that you're welcome in this home. And Americans, do you hold up this sign for others who are not like you in your house, or do you have people who would not feel welcome in your home? I'm not talking because of social distancing. I'm talking because of our attitudes and our behaviors and our differences that divide. And Paul tells us we ought to welcome each other Home. When you say welcome, the words are welcome home. The Christian community is one where we throw our arms wide open to one another and we say, here we are. Welcome home. I was reading this passage, you know, the pastor's kind of 
sorted through this together this week, and I couldn't help but remember the last time we gathered, we put a fly banner outside. It was one of the mantras of our church. It says, Bethel, Hobart, Portage, welcome home. Why? Because in this space, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you bring in terms of your baggage. All I care is that if you're here in faith in Jesus Christ, you're a brother and sister and you're part of our family. And our church's posture will always be to say to you, this is home. We're here to make you feel welcomed home. Paul is calling us as God has made a way for us to be welcomed home, that we might welcome others home. You know, God made a, I don't know if you've thought about this, but God made a, a home for us in heaven. That's what John chapter 14 says. Jesus said, uh, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may also be with me. There's a home awaiting you in heaven. That is absolutely true to our theology. But while we live on earth, we still have this yearning, this longing to get to home. Don't you have this? This feeling that you're a sojourner, a stranger, that you're not yet there where you're supposed to be. And one day, when God has finished his work in your life here in this life, you will go to be with God home. Welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. How has God told us welcome home? Well, he's welcomed us into the family of faith to help us live in unity together. But Paul is pushing us here. One more thing, if I could push us one more space. Paul is, describe, is describing to us a, a term that is a sin that we often refuse to let people into our home because of this one situation, this one fear. The technical word that we could use to describe the sin Paul is identifying in us. The technical word is xenophobia. Maybe you've heard that word. Maybe you don't know what it means. It simply means this, the fear of the other, those not like you. When Paul says, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you, he's saying no xenophobia, no fear of others, because you yourself used to be an other to God. You used to be a stranger too. You used to be a person without a place. But now you are adopted into the family of God and given an eternal home with him. The gospel is stranger Welcome home. That is the gospel. In Luke, as Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, the father in two separate occasions goes out to his children. And he says, welcome home. I want you to come inside of my home. I want you to eat and be with me. And so we see welcome to the home you were designed for. Welcome to the home prepared to you for you by the work of Jesus. And in fact, God has always launched out his saving work in the world by pushing his people towards other-centeredness. Do you remember Abraham? God said, leave your country and go where I send you, and I will make you blessed to bless others. And God brought his people out of Egypt, his Israelites out of Egypt. He established with them the covenant that they would have a promised land. But within this law, there were so many laws to help protect the stranger the foreigner, and the alien. People rejected this and they themselves were led into exile. God had created people who were capable of embracing others 
But one theologian wrote it this way, all humanity was perverted into self-protective thinking and behavior within the framework of exclusion, which is wholly opposite to God's divine hospitality. And so the son left his home and accepted our vulnerability as humans. Jesus selflessly gave himself for the other. He was born into a people who were suffering unjustly at the hands of powerful Rome. He was born to hardworking parents who gave birth out of wedlock. He wouldn't say there's no such thing as systemic racism. For when he was two, the king ordered all Jewish toddlers under two to be executed in case one of them were the Messianic king. So his parents fled as refugees back to Egypt. He grew up and returned to Galilee and preached the inclusion of all people, especially the poor and the disenfranchised. He welcomed others in all areas of his life, religious, non-religious, clean, non-clean, Pharisee, sinner, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan. And worst of all, on that cross, as he was crucified, which is a systemic form of torture. He suffocated as the local law enforcement stood by watching. Then they put him in a grave. Why? Because he was reconciling the other back to himself. He was paying the price of sin, individual and corporate. He was making a way for us who were enemies of God, who were across the picket line from us. We were on the other side of the line of sin, and he was laying down his life so that we might lay our lives down as well. And find that the way of God is love, not hate. That life comes by love, not fear. On the cross, his arms are opened wide so that we might be welcome home. That's how God in Christ has welcomed us. He gave up everything for us. So church, what does this mean for us? Where we have neglected certain people, we must repent. Where we have silenced people with the gospel, we must Listen, where we have hurt people, we must apologize. Where we have differences, we must launch out from our commonality in Christ to ask questions to develop empathy. When we feel ourselves offended, we must ask, what in my own heart is raging against that person? And what preference am I exalting as an idol in my own heart that This offense is revealing inside of me. If we really take seriously the call of Jesus to welcome one another in the gospel, what that means is that we're going to have to build this church a little bit bigger. We're going to have to set the tent a little bit higher. We're going to have to put the posts a little bit wider. 
The gospel means that our family builds a huge home, one, of, one that is able to handle the complex issues of our day in all its various forms and challenges. It's got to be a place where, let me get really specific, where protesters and police can sit side by side, even hand in hand, and celebrate the fact that God welcomes us home. Where we can live in harmony with one another. It's got to be a place that recognizes that God welcomed me in my own immorality. God welcomed me in my own ignorance. God welcomed me in my own insecurities. And if I want to grow in my gospel identity as a Christian first, you know that, right? You know that's your first identity as a Christian. I love our country. It's farther down the list. Because I have a king that is stronger than a president. I have a king that does not enable or, or, or plead to different sides. He welcomes all. I have a king who knows how to perfectly navigate all the storms of life that us as a society are struggling in. And so this is not a Dow with America message by any means, but it is in the sense of, is America higher than Christ in your life? Coleman, be the absolute best citizen and military personnel that you absolutely can be. We need you. And we love you. And we need you to do your job with excellence and courage and boldness, keeping us safe. Amen? But don't do it because of a flag. Do it because of your king. Do it because protecting lives is what Christ did. Do it because there's a higher calling than just what it makes out of you as a person. You're already a hero because God loves you. I'm sorry for calling you out, but we just prayed for you, and so I feel like that's the common example. But it's true, right? As you help things get on the radio, as you help people stay safe on the internet, as you, as you do your job building things, your, your, your identity is a Christian first. Because God in Christ has welcomed you. God in Christ has made a way for us to come home to him. And God in Christ is the only way that we will be able to get over our own prejudices and differences to be able to open our arms and say, Mikasa, Sukasa, welcome home. Let me make you feel at home. Even though we disagree politically, even though we disagree over the Cubs and the Sox, even though we disagree over the Packers and the Bears, even though we disagree over a lot of things, I love you in Christ most. And so I want to welcome you home.